I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiber Fueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant You, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. In honor of Father's Day last Sunday, I gathered up your questions, called my dad, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., affectionately known as Essie, and I want you to know that there's probably nothing in this world that he loves more than to help people understand the importance of their fork, the simple fork in fighting disease and how we should never think that it's okay to injure our endothelial cells. He is the ultimate task master and much to everyone's disappointment, he doesn't prescribe a 90% plan. He is 100% all in and he expects the rest of us to follow suit. He does not believe in moderation as most of you know, but he does believe in you and your ability to tackle this disease head on and bring it to its knees. Nobody said that this was going to be easy and that's okay. And all of us from time to time need a a really good challenge in our lives to push ourselves outside our comfort zones, test our limits and see exactly what we're made of. My father speaks the truth. He never rounds up to make an argument and land in his favor. And he just wants us to live our best, most vibrant lives. Now, to give you a sneak peek, some of the topics we discuss are nitric oxide and why chewing leafy greens every day is your best defense against chronic Western disease, including COVID-19. Why fluoride toothpaste is a no-no. My father's take on statins and supplements, and of course, the fear of getting enough protein. You've got questions, we've got easy answers. So let's dive in, but before we do, a quick reminder, all of you are invited to join our new live and online plant stock event. 
It's from August 14th to the 16th. We'll be streaming this interactive weekend learning lab straight from the Esselstyn family farm, which is where my father grew up and where he formed his early worldview and unwavering work ethic that led to a lifetime of research and truth-seeking. We have a world-class video team that's going to be on hand, giving each of you a front-row seat to the history of the farm and very candid conversations that I'll be having with my parents in between talks by the Brock stars of the Plant Strong movement. Visit the show notes or go to plantstock2020.com to register today. And I've got some good news. Partial proceeds will benefit the Esselstyn Foundation, a 501c3 dedicated to helping share the good news about plants. All right, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of the Plant Strong Podcast. In honor of Father's Day, I'm going to be interviewing my father. Uh, You know, we last brought him on the podcast three months ago when we just had the kind of the outbreak of COVID-19 here in the United States. And so would love to get his thoughts on that. Also, we have uh, a bunch of questions from, uh, from our podcast listeners really that are, that are uh, directed towards you, uh, Daddy. But, you know, let me open this up by saying, um, you know, in, in, in honor of Father's Day, um, you know, how lucky I am to have you as my father. And uh, you have done such a great job blazing such a, uh, a wonderful, bright path forward, not only for me, but for so many other people that have um, had the, have the privilege and the honor of um, embracing your tenants around a whole food plant-based lifestyle. And beyond that, I've had the privilege of, of seeing just how you conduct yourself as a, um, as a father, a man, and a great human being. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, so let me start by, I want to share something with the listeners, something that happened to me last Sunday. Uh, and it's obviously something that you're well aware of, but, um, you know, I love mountain biking. Uh, I mountain bike behind my house. There's this green space of probably, uh, anywhere between, oh, 20 to 50 miles of mountain biking trails. And I've been mountain biking back there for well over 20 years without any kind of mishap or, or, or injury. But last Sunday morning, I was riding with two of my friends. And on a, on a decline that was going into a creek bed, uh, I hit a, a slippery rock, took a nice tumble, and basically um, broke, broke my, the distal part of my fibula, which is, is that, would you say that's considered kind of part of the ankle? Fair Absolutely. to say? Yes. Yeah. And so I immediately knew that something was seriously wrong. I tried to stand up and, and got nauseous and wanted to vomit, got lightheaded. These two guys had to end up carrying me out um, uh, through the woods into a backyard. And, uh, you know, long story short, went in for x-rays the next day. And in, in fact, it, was, it showed that it was, it was fractured. Now, over the next couple of days, we were trying to get some reassurance as to whether or not I should have a, a surgery uh, be, to try and determine if this was a stable or unstable fracture. And we were able to determine a week later 
after the inflammation was down, that it was an unstable fracture and needed to have, needed to be set, needed to have a, um, eight screws and a plate. And so that surgery happened <clears throat> two days ago. Uh, I think everything went really, really well, but I am now convalescing <laughs> in, in bed. And it's been really a, uh, a bit of a torturous last <laughs> six, seven, eight days, uh, kind of on my back trying to, trying to take care of this thing. But you've been so helpful <laughs> as far as guiding me through this process. So thank you. <laughs> well, Rip, I'm just <clears throat> delighted to ha have you share your story with your with the audience. The the key when you have a fracture of the, of the distal fibula, that along with the tibia makes up the ankle mortis, uh, the bone on either side of that rides on the talus. And uh, it was very nice to see that they absolutely brought back precisely as it should be the anatomy of those uh, of those bones, even though it took eight eight screws and a metal plate. <laughs> well, <laughs> and then also on the other I side, may, you may have some excitement. You can join me when you go through the uh, yeah. airport line and you <laughs> the bells go off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Well, it's a little more tincture of time and skillful neglect, and this will uh, take care of itself nicely yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, so remember uh, what remember what Ralph Waldo Emerson said. This time, time, like all times, is a great time if one knows but what to do with it. Yes. Well, I'm trying to figure out what to do with this. <laughs> uh, I I want to get out and I want to I want to swim. I want to I want to walk. I want to do something. Uh, so the last time that we had you on the podcast, uh, COVID nineteen had just hit. Um, it was back in March, I believe, you know, we're now April, May, June, we're now, you know, it's three months later. Do you have any thoughts on kind of where we are right now with, uh, with the coronavirus? Well, what is very apparent if you, uh, follow the a television update every day is that there are a number of states in the East who really buckled down and played hardball with a mask social distancing, staying at home, hand-washing, uh, getting, really, it was interesting how Governor Cuomo uh, absolutely pounded that message home for day after day after day. And the, uh, the states there in the East have really uh, kept it pretty well under control. On the other hand, those that opened, opened early and uh, were a little bit more relaxed or, or, never, or never closed, uh, you know, it looks like we're paying the price. I think the next week will really tell. The, the virus, the, the virus doesn't listen to <laughs> uh, to anybody. The virus has its uh, its own pace and what it's going to do. But there has been something that I, that I'm particularly keen on because it fits right into the uh, the lifestyle that we want our patients who have cardiovascular disease to follow. And just to give you a little bit of background, uh, this has to do with, with nitric oxide. And we may have talked about it, that some, somewhat last time, but I think it bears repeating because yeah. sometimes the whole concept is not that easy for people to grasp the uh, first time. And it was a number of, actually, I think a decade or two ago, maybe more, that uh, uh, it was found that that earlier coronavirus uh, could be killed by nitric oxide, which is obviously a, a, a molecule of gas. 
And so at the present time, there are two academic institutions, both the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, where they have uh, set up a study where patients who come in with the uh, coronavirus will be first exposed to 30 minutes of inhaling nitric oxide, and that's repeated three times a day. They're also doing the same with uh, with uh, uh, the healthcare workers who they will get 30 minutes of inhalation of nitric oxide when they arrive at work and 30 minutes of inhalation again when they depart for the day. And uh, hopefully that uh, we ought to really begin to get some results from that. I would think within the next three or three or four weeks, I'm going to try to stay close to the internet to, uh, to see where that progresses because remember where the virus enters your system is not through your mouth. It's through your nasal passages and your trachea and your bronchus and so forth down into your lungs. And if you happen to have, as most people do, a very rich supply of endothelial cells in your nose, mm. and if those endothelial cells are able to manufacture nitric oxide, then as soon as your virus tries to enter you through your nose, it'll wham into this wonderful population of endothelial cells that are putting out nitric oxide, which hopefully will diminish or kill off the virus. Now, how... Now, that's a little tricky here because we've got to review how nitric oxide is, uh, is made by, uh, by each of us. Well, when we're younger, and actually into our senior years, but not as plentiful, when we're younger, we make tremendous amounts of nitric oxide. Our endothelial cells, which are the delicate innermost lining of the artery, they're all over the body, every blood vessel. When you're young, and these are so healthy. Did you ever hear of anybody at age eight having a heart attack? <laughs> no. No. But when we do those autopsy studies on women and men in their late 17 up to 34, women, that is, uh, these are persons who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides. Now, the disease, early coronary artery disease is ubiquitous. Not enough for their coronary events, but there it is already started. Now, we know that through measurements that by the time you are age 50, beautifully healthy, your endothelial cells are only making 50% of what they made for you when you were age 25. Mm -hmm. But by the time you're over 80, you've lost over 70% of that endothelial production of nitric oxide. So with one simple change, we are able to goose up that endothelial production of nitric oxide, and at the same time, begin to in, utilize an entirely different pathway, which has really just been discovered in the, roughly the last decade or so, where we, even in our senior years, can make plenty of nitric oxide. Well, what's that one simple change? That one simple change is chewing greens. I'll tell you what the greens are in a moment. <laughs> but if I can get people to chew, at least for my heart patients, I do this because the, re the very reason they have their heart disease is because over the years, they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, compromised, and turned their endothelial system into a train wreck. They simply no longer have enough 
endothelial production of nitric oxide to protect themselves from making blockages in plaque. However, the good news is that this is not a malignancy. And once you can get patients to never again pass through their lips another morsel that is going to further injure their endothelial cells, then the endothelial cells recover, makes enough nitric oxide so we can not only halt disease progression, but also often we can see elements of disease reversal. Now that's heart, the heart disease part. Right. Well, now let's uh, get back to how do we make that green leafy vegetable make more nitric oxide? When you chew the green leafy vegetable six times a day, roughly the size of three quarters of your fist, after it has first been boiled in water, five and a half to six minutes, so it's nice and tender, then you must anoint it with several drops of a delicious balsamic or rice vinegar. Why? Because it is the acetic acid in the vinegar that restores the nitric oxide synthase enzyme contained within the endothelial cell that is responsible for making nitric oxide. So, now, the second great thing that happens when you're chewing the green is it restores the capacity of your bone marrow to once again make plenty of endothelial progenitor cells. What do they do? The endothelial progenitor cells replace our senescent, injured, worn out endothelial cells. Now we come to the third thing, and this is the absolute key. When you are chewing a green leafy vegetable, you are chewing a nitrate. That nitrate, is those nitrates are going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. Those bacteria are going to reduce the nitrates that you are chewing to nitrites. Now, when you swallow the nitrites, it is your own gastric acid that further reduces the nitrites to more nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. So, here you are, literally, from dawn to dusk, because remember, you're going to chew these green leafy vegetables along with your breakfast cereal, again as a mid-morning snack, again with your lunch and sandwich, that's three, mid-afternoon, four, dinner time, five, and of course, I adore it when you have that evening snack of kale. What are you doing? All day long, from dawn to dusk, you are absolutely replenishing your body with this amazing molecule of nitric oxide, the deficiency of which gave you this heart disease in the first place. And it doesn't have any extra expense. There's no hideous side effect. So imagine it this way. When your body, therefore, is now just loaded with nitric oxide, when that virus tries to get into your nose yeah. and your endothelial cells are just mm. pouring out nitric oxide, I'm convinced that you're going to be much healthier and better resist because remember, it's felt that one of the reasons that the younger people are so resistant to the coronavirus is because right. they have a high level of nitric oxide, whereas the elderly, it's obviously, it's much more diminished unless they're eating the greens. Now, what are the greens I'm talking about? <laughs> we, they are. Yeah, yeah. Hush, 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 chart, kale, collards, collard greens, beet greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, napa cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula and asparagus. And the top five are... Kale, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, beet greens, and beets. 
And look what it does for your memory. <laughs> hi, Anne. Uh, hi. Uh, good to see you. So this that's the perfect segue into the first question that we have from one of our listeners. And this is uh, a gentleman named Mark. He's from uh, Birmingham, uh, Birmingham, England. And his question is, Rip and Dr. Esselstyn, could you advise me? I live in the UK and I have not had COVID-19. Is it advisable to continue training and running marathons? I have read that distance runners' immune systems are compromised, uh, albeit temporarily after pushing their bodies to the limit. Would it, be, uh, would it be a more sensible strategy to run less miles and keep my immune system strong, or is this a myth? Yeah, I think that uh, if you really, really crank it, there is, uh, there is some data on s swimmers who, uh, as you may or may not know, competitive swimmers really train uh, not once a day, but mm -hmm. they train twice a day. And uh, they're, those are tremendous workouts. And they can get really, uh, uh, before they taper at the end of the season, they can, uh, they can really be a little bit broken down. And it, there is some data that they seem to catch colds or a flu a little bit more frequently uh, in that particular f format. And I'm sure the same would be true if you were running. And instead of running, uh, you know, four or five miles a day, suppose these, some people get carried away and they'll run 18 or 20 miles a day. It might be possible that that would be a little bit hard on the, immu on the immune system. But uh, yeah. I think that I would, I would not, whatever you do, don't, don't stop exercising. Yeah. Keep it up. It's really yeah. such a bonus. What I would also remind Mark is that if you remember <clears throat> from um, when we had Dr. Dr. B, the gastroenterologist on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he, he told us how 70% of our immune system resides in our gut. And the key is really, uh, if you want to build up a, 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 an immune system, it's like a fortress. You want to make sure you're getting more than 30 different types of whole plant-based foods in a week uh, with all those different types of fiber. But, oh, yeah. yeah, the fiber, the fiber is, is king. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would, I would tell, tell Mark, listen to your body. If you're feeling like, you know, those yeah. miles are beating you down uh, to a pulp, then maybe dial it back a little that's, bit. That's what we call overtraining, over right? Yeah, yeah. All right, here's, here's another question, and it's, it's one that I think we get, you know, all the time. Uh, my 18-year-old son is interested in going plant strong, but is extremely picky, and he's very worried about getting enough protein. How much protein should he consume each day to build muscle? He works out six times a week and was playing lacrosse daily before COVID-19, so he's very active. He eats roughly 2,000 calories a day. He's 5'9", and weighs about 160 pounds. I'm plant strong myself and have been trying to convert him. Thank you. So do you have yeah, a thought think, there? Yeah, yeah, there's not going to be any protein deficiency. That's an absolute classic myth that has to be uh, really blown away. There is so much protein in grains. There is protein in all these different legumes, beans, and lentils. There is protein in uh, red, yellow, leafy, green vegetables. There is protein in potatoes, sweet potatoes, white potatoes. It's really, it's, it's almost impossible to be a protein deficient. As far as trying to measure out in grams, it would probably be somewhere up around 
50 grams, a little bit more for men than women, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to have you have to eat by a calculator. Just know that the, the, the spectrum of plant-based foods that you're eating, and again, I give you plenty of, of, of protein. As a matter of fact, if you want to be really convinced about this, go through the, see the, uh, the movie that was recently produced by James Wilkes, The Game Changers. Mm-hmm. Take a look at the, the German guy by Baboudian, who's lifting 1,200 pounds, <laughs> plant-based. Where does yeah. he get his protein? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a boogeyman. Don't need to worry about it. Um, and you know, just to kind of drive this home a little bit for um, for uh, for this for this mother who's concerned about her son. Um, you know, one one piece of whole grain toast is about seven grams of protein. One uh, one third of a can of black beans is about seven grams of protein. Um, one two ounce serving of of a whole grain pasta is about eight grams of protein. They now make a red lentil pasta that's got 20 grams of protein per two ounces. Uh, and if your son is 160 pounds, like my father just said, if he needs right around uh, 50 to 60 grams of protein a day, he's going to meet that very easily uh, as long as he's consuming enough calories. Not a problem. Yes, it's true. There are ample sources of clean and heart-healthy protein in a whole foods, plant-based diet for humans. But did you know the same exists for your dog? Well, say hello to Wild Earth. This veterinarian-developed dog food is made meat-free with complete plant-based protein, plus superfood ingredients like oats, chickpeas, and sweet potatoes to nourish your dog and optimize their gut health. Our pets and our planet deserve the best that we can give them right now. Scroll down to visit the show notes or visit plantstrongpodcast.com and click on the Wild Earth banner to claim your exclusive offer for up to 50% off your dog food purchase. Um, All right, this is somebody... um, Dr. Esselstyn, I have had a heart attack and have been following, um, following your book, Preventing and Reversing Heart Disease, for almost four years since the heart attack. My question is about the difference in your food groups. Um, Dr. Esselstyn says no to avocados and nuts, but you seem to include them. Is, can you ask your father, is it okay for me to add some portions of those two things back into my diet? I'm not overweight. My cholesterol is nice now and low, and, uh, and my blood pressure is fine. I'm 67 years old. Yeah, well, thank you for that. It's an interesting uh, question. It really comes back to what I, we talked about earlier, where everybody agrees that where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure the delicate innermost lining of our artery called the endothelium, all right? And so what he has done successfully over the last 65 years, he has so sufficiently trashed his endothelial production of nitric oxide that he didn't have enough nitric oxide left for to, to protect him from developing heart blockages and so forth. Now, <clears throat> 
when you have this uh, uh, business about nuts and avocado, remember this. Nuts are loaded with saturated fat. What's what are the key fats we want to get rid of? Obviously, the trans fat, right? And saturated fats. Nuts are loaded with saturated fats. I have no problem with people who have not got heart disease having nuts, uh, providing it doesn't go crazy. But if if I ever let people uh, see, right now we've got a winner. And if I ever tell people it's okay to have nuts, uh, it's not going to be three nuts, walnuts on their cereal. What it will be, nuts are so addicting. They will be in the glove compartment. They'll be in the bathroom, the bedroom, the, the hallway, the living room. And suddenly we've got all this saturated fat, which is the last thing I want for somebody who has an injured endothelium and has got a history of heart disease. And the same goes for avocado. Now, what about seeds? I'm very uh, supportive of even patients with heart disease having either chia seeds, a tablespoon or two, or your flaxseed meal, a tablespoon or two on your cereal because there's your uh, additional uh, omega-3. But I think that this, uh, see, I have to go back to look at the studies that we've had. And it is so gratifying and so exciting to see when every single one of the patients that adhered to our program halted their disease. There just was, whether it was the first group of 18 or was the latter group of 177 patients, all who had serious heart disease, absolutely no recurrence in <laughs> over three well, to four years in patients who adhered to this. Halted. And then as Colin Campbell said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he would even say treated their disease. Right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So this next question um, is it actually re relates to leafy greens in a, in a kind of a, a boomerang way. But here's, so here's the question. Uh, and I have read that green leafies interfere with its effectiveness. I haven't heard Dr. Esselstyn address thyroid issues and whole food plant-based eating. Do I have to limit or avoid any foods, especially leafy greens, because I'm on this medicine? No. All right. I would not, I would not limit, his food, limit his foods because he's taking thyroxin. No. Nice and easy. Like it. Uh, Dr. Esselstyn, what is your opinion on statin medications if my numbers are optimal on Dr. Esselstyn's protocol without them? Well, that's the, the whole idea of a statin is to simply try to reduce the cholesterol. The way it, the statin drugs work is they interfere with the liver's production of cholesterol. There is an enzyme called the HMG-CoA reductase enzyme on the pathway to manufacturing a cholesterol molecule. And what a statin does is it literally it interferes with that. The, uh, the statin manufacturers don't like it when I refer to that as poisoning the enzyme, because that's in essence, in essence what it does. But the manufacturers say that a statin inhibits the enzyme, okay? Now, the problem with statins are that the, some people just simply cannot tolerate any of the statin side effects. They get such severe muscle cramps, they can't take it. Uh, they, it's injuring their liver, they can't take it. It's causing them to be di diabetic, 
They can't take it. Or it's given them brain fog. So there are these serious uh, side effects that have to be considered. Now, statins found their place. In patients who have heart disease, who are eating the horrible Western diet, they've been able to show that there's some benefit to lowering the cholesterol and helping these people. On the other hand, how many statins do you think they take in Okinawa, rural China, or Central Africa? Well, Not many. Heart disease, no statins. In other words, and we have found through our program where uh, every month I counsel a group of uh, 14 or 16 patients with serious cardiovascular disease. And what we have found is that in that group of patients, many, by the time they arrive to see us, have already found out that they simply cannot take a statin, too much side effects. And yet if they adhered to whole food, plant-based nutrition, never having another morsel of food pass their lips that is going to endanger or hurt their endothelium, then they literally are building an endothelial fortress. Yep. So even if they have a few extra molecules of cholesterol coursing through their bloodstream, uh, they don't get heart disease. They don't get any progression of their heart disease. Good. We like that a lot. Um, so this next question is about omega-3s versus omega-6s. And they want to know, can we get enough omega-3s and omega-6s from whole plant-based foods, and which in particular do you recommend, Dr. Esselstyn? Well, I think the key uh, here to know is these, these are our essential fatty acids. We need both omega-6 and omega-3. And ideally, the ratio between the, the two should be something like one-to-one one or even three-to-one of omega-6 to omega-3. But in this country, <laughs> it's, yeah. everything's out of kilter. And our omega-6 to omega-3 is either 17 to 1 or 30 to 1. And that's what leads to really a development of, of disease. So you're never going to be short on omega-6. It's almost impossible. It is so omnipresent. We look a little bit more carefully at omega-3. And really where omega-3 uh, are found in abundance are in green leafy vegetables. So, uh, so green leafy vegetables and in flaxseed meal and chia seeds. And that uh, really ought to cover you nicely. On the other hand, if you want to be sure about whether, what your omega-3 is, you can get an omega check. You can get That's a blood test. You can determine uh, whether your omega-3 is low, medium, or optimal. Mm. And you can always then, if you, if, you, if you want to kick it up into optimal and you're not there, you can always take uh, omega-3 algae. I prefer that because uh, it tends to uh, limit the amount of, uh, of oil. So, so I think that's but a great... Gonna, so, uh, so the body, the, body it, the, the reason that there's a little bit of competition between omega-6 and omega-3 for an enzyme called 6 desaturase. And uh, if, if there's a swapping of omega-6... It may burn up enough of this enzyme, there will not be enough left to, to convert the uh, linolenic to uh, linolenic. In other words, the body's conversion can be compromised. But uh, you should be able to do all right with really getting plenty of the, uh, the, right. the green right. leafy vegetables as well as the uh, uh, chia seeds and flaxseed meal. Right. So green leafies, soybeans, walnuts, chia seeds, ground flaxseed meal. Those are winners. Um, 
So I think that's a good segue to this question, which is just Dr. Esselstyn, um, what supplements, if any, do you recommend your patients take? I like them to take uh, the uh, vitamin B12. Okay, B12. What what kind of dosage do you like? Well, I got a little bit biased in the dosage by uh, Dan Jacobson, who for years was a sort of a uh, international authority on B12, who worked at the Cleveland Clinic as a colleague, and. Uh, Dan pretty well convinced me that probably for persons over the age of 60, it ought to be 500 micrograms a day. And over the age of 70, he kicked it up to 1,000. And the reason, he said, is that we don't want anybody to be deficient in B12, and there seems to be no downside if you're taking 1,000, because what happens as you become more senior is your gastric acid, which is responsible for helping to absorb vitamin b12 yeah and as well as your intrinsic factor in your stomach which is important in the absorption of b12 as we become more senior <laughs> like so many other things becomes a little bit uh yeah. more compromised shall we say so and uh but that's pretty much where i uh why i feel the way i do about that okay and then uh, anything else? Any anything else like uh, C or D or anything like that? Um, iodine? No. No, I don't. I don't know that. I think C. I, my good friend Colin Campbell has pretty well taught me that uh, in all of us, the body is an absolute wonderful symphony of reactions that's going on uh, all the time. As you sit there, as I sit there, as Mummy sits there. All these thousands of reactions going on at the time. It's a symphony. Now, what happens is when we take supplements, there is a little bit of a major concern about interrupting the symphony. Let me give an example. You go to listen to a symphony, and you find out that you love French, French horns, nice, mellow tone. So you say to yourself, well, since I made all that money in a certain transaction, I'm going to donate some money to the symphony. I want them to put 300 French horns. Now, they do that, and Jesus, does it sound like crap. (laughs) The symphony has been destroyed. Well, the only reason I'm using that example is if you suddenly take all this extra vitamin C and, and E and all the other B vitamins and there's, there are these studies that are emerging where people are more susceptible to heart disease and cancer who are taking multivitamins. Mm. You're interrupting the symphony. Mm. Mm. Now, yeah. I have no problem with, you know, people want to check their vitamin D, see what their level is, they want to bump it up close. But you see, the jury is really still out on, the, on many of those supplements. So you want to be very careful about those. Right. So unless there's a known deficiency, you don't recommend anybody no. taking the, the D or something no. else like that. Okay. Um, here's a question. Dr. Esselstyn, I got a question for you, sir. What's the easiest way to start this program? I have tried over and over again and can't seem to stick with it. 
Well, I think what you have to do is when you get the education about this, uh, it's pretty easy. Let's suppose that this is somebody who is trying to start who has heart disease, all right? And uh, if they understand, because I think the reason that we're running about a 90% uh, compliance in our, uh, in our seminar with patients that we asked to go plant-based, and, uh, and we think that's pretty remarkable to get <laughs> a 90% uh, compliance. Why does that happen? Because these patients... If you just tell them that you've got to change their diet or uh, get a little exercise and uh, get adequate sleep, you've given them really nothing to really latch on to. And this is why I spend in the seminar, I'll spend close to an hour getting them to understand that the reason they created their heart disease in the first place is because every time since they were child, children, they have been injuring the endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide. Once they get it into their head, that it is a, their loss of nitric oxide that gave them this disease. Mm. And when they suddenly understand that we are showing them a way by avoiding the foods that injure the endothelium and actually eating the foods that restore the endothelium, how can anybody <laughs> come up to me after with an hour of this and say to me, Dr. Esselstyn, that was just fascinating. I'm so, I've never heard that before. I really now know how I created my heart disease, but I should tell you that Lois and I are having our 35th wedding anniversary in two weeks, and boy, am I gonna destroy some more endothelial cells. Yeah. Nonsense. Nobody with a brain in their head is gonna do that. I, so the other way that you get people to start, let them know that it's absolutely gonna be a knockout taste to this food. Still absolutely going to be delicious. And the way that we have them understand that is the Manel Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia, a number of years ago, did an interesting study where they took patients and divided them into three groups. One group getting 34% fat, typical Western diet. Another group significantly down, but still up about 20% fat. And then the third group where we are in our program, about 11% fat. At the end of 10 weeks, one of those groups had completely lost their craving for fat. Mm. Right. The group at 11%. Why? You were simply down-regulating your brain receptor for sugar and fat when you do this. And if you, therefore, simply try to do this and you say, well, Dr. Esselstyn, I was good all week. I really, I'm going to reward myself and belly up to the trough on the weekend. Well, nonsense. You don't want to do that because if you do, you never really fully downregulate the fat receptor. You're constantly then in a state of misery and denial and you get recidivism. Right. So that is kind of a, a nice answer to this gentleman's question as far as he starts, but he always seems to basically fall off the wagon because he's probably not giving himself um, the opportunity to downregulate those receptors in his brain, right? And totally lose those cravings. Right. Perfect. Um, so, Dr. Esselstyn, could you please explain why we should not use fluoride? Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. When we, uh, I remember when we uh, introduced this podcast today, we talked about the whole business about making extra nitric oxide and the way you do it with by eating green leafy vegetables. 
Remember what I said was, when you are chewing the green leafy vegetables, you are chewing a nitrate and that nitrate is going to mix in your mouth with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. And those bacteria will reduce the nitrate in your mouth to nitrite, which is an essential step. And then the nitrite, when you swallow it, will be further reduced by your gastric acid to more, uh, to more uh, nitric oxide. But the caveat here is you can destroy this wonderful sequence because if you're taking antibiotics or if you've got fluoride in your toothpaste, you destroy those beneficial bacteria in your mouth and then you can't make the transition from nitrate to nitrite. And if you are taking antacids, you reduce the acidity in your stomach so you cannot convert the nitrites to more nitric oxide. And where, where did you learn that about the fluoride and the antacids? Uh, from Nathan Bryant. Nathan Bryant. All right. I believe Nathan Bryant will be on the, the podcast uh, next week. Okay. Question from a very concerned uh, wife. On November 1st, 2019, my pretty young husband had a heart attack. We got your books and have been whole food plant-based, no oil ever since. He's lost 20 pounds, and is not, but he's not a heavy guy to begin with. His doctor suggested adding some animal protein back into the mix, <laughs> like fish, and also some fats like nuts and avocado. They are concerned about the medication causing problems if he continues to lose more weight. I was wondering if you have any suggestions on this situation. Thank you, Dr. Esselstyn. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, he has to understand why does he have the heart attack in the first place, get him to understand the importance of the endothelial cell and nitric oxide. Now, the weight loss, interesting enough, is what we were asked, we're not asking people to eat any food that is strange to them. These are the foods that they're eating, they have eaten all their life. But what we are doing, we are asking them to relinquish the foods that will injure their endothelium. So we ask them to stop with the oil, mm -hmm. stop the animal protein, and stop dairy and sugar, all right? So that's a lot of calories. Now, what we have found that seems to work is the following. When they have their breakfast, if they have a heaping bowl of old-fashioned Quaker oats plus raisins plus uh, bananas plus raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries plus two or three heaping tablespoons of flaxseed meal, that is an absolute delicious, healthy feast. Mm -hmm. And if they like it and they want to repeat it again either mid-morning or mid-afternoon or evening, several times we find that that absolutely halts. There's so many uh, calories in there and they're so safe. But it doesn't have to be oatmeal. I mean, I, and I would encourage them to try to eat the oats uh, dry, just like a dry cereal, because if you use oat milk, that's got a lot of calories in it as well. Right, right. So that's just some, some easy way around to get the extra calories. Yeah. But I, I would totally discourage, with all due respect to the cardiologists that are recommending animal protein, I would totally disagree with that. That's just going to make his disease worse. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it sounds like these cardiologists, um, just they don't know of your work, right? Well, listen, the cardiologists are, are basically they're good guys. They want to see their patients succeed. But 
they're at such a deficit because in medical, neither in medical school nor in their postgraduate training, have they really ever had any training about the causation of the illness that they've been designated to treat. And this is why I was uh, really feeling pretty proud and excited to be five years ago, I was asked to uh, join the American College of Cardiology. They wanted me to be a part of their uh, of their uh, nutrition committee. And one of our tasks is to try to educate cardiologists about the importance of plant-based nutrition. But you see that that real, immediately that sets up uh, a challenge because you can't just suddenly decide, my gosh, there's something to this plant-based stuff. It reverses heart disease. I've seen the picture of reversal of the arteries. It must be great. But the average cardiologist has no concept how to do this. You're not going to make it happen in a, a 12 or 15 minute office visit without the spouse. And uh, just uh, say one, uh, the reason why we're probably proud of the 90% uh, adherence that we've getting with our program. If you're going to make a patient change lifestyle, you've got to show a patient respect. And the only way that I know to show a patient respect is give them my time. So here, here's a, um, I think we got two more questions for you here. Uh, and I'm sorry to all the uh, all the listeners who have asked questions that we're not going to be able to get around to uh, in this particular episode. No, next time. Yeah. But, uh, I'm 63, Dr. Esselstyn, and I've been whole food plant-based for six years. I have low ferritin levels. My doctor told me to take iron tablets. I don't want to take the supplement, but eating green leafies don't seem to be uh, supplying enough ferritin for me. Um, is this a common problem for vegans and what can I do about it? No, it's very uncommon. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, Colin Campbell looking at all these wonderful counties throughout China that were plant-based, no, no anemias. When you, if, you, if it's a male who has low levels of ferritin, low levels of iron, yep. you want to be sure that he's not losing. Usually, and usually where that's losing iron is through the gastrointestinal tract. You either have some erosion uh, in your stomach, maybe an ulcer that is very, very slowly bleeding, or maybe somewhere else farther down the gastrointestinal tract that I would be one of, that might be uh, identified by uh, upper GI endoscopy, where they look down with a tube, inspect your stomach on the upper intestine. And then, of course, they can do the absolute uh, reverse from below with colonoscopy look at the entire colon to be sure that's clear as well. But I, uh, I really think it's, it's really tough to, to, to blame, blame the diet on a low, uh, low yeah. ferret. But I think, I think we see it sometimes in some of the, some of the younger women that are high level athletes that are training. Well, what they're doing, well, they're losing it through their menstrual activity. That's where they're losing most of their iron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then sometimes I think it makes sense there. Um, hmm. All right. Well, good. Um, I got one more question for you. Um, Dr. Esselstyn, how do you answer critics, especially cancer survivors who don't want to believe that a whole food plant-based, uh, who don't want to believe the whole food plant-based philosophy? They politely listen, but don't read the information. I, I try to pass along. Have any thoughts for this, uh, for that woman? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. There, as far as the the cancer goes, and uh, plant based nutrition, Ornish did some uh, 
some rather fascinating work with men with prostate cancer that is a kind of an example where <clears throat> men with early prostate cancer uh, were placed on whole food plant-based nutrition and what they found was over time there was much less expression of the genetic uh, cancer gene and much more expression of the cancer suppressive gene let's take that further step further if you have that prostate cancer growing in a petri dish and let's say you add serum from somebody who is an omnivore eating the usual western diet it will suppress the can that serum will suppress the cancer cells by seven percent however if you do the same thing taking serum from somebody who's totally plant-based it will suppress the cancer cells 70 percent and i believe it was uh, dr uh, greger in one of his presentations shows that uh, same thing to some degree with breast cancer right so i don't really think there's a downside it may not obviously may not be the uh, cure especially with disease that is advanced but there certainly is a uh, is no downside to, to eating whole food plant-based nutrition for patients with cancer and there may be very well a significant upside yeah yeah well you know when i interviewed colin a couple of weeks ago he went as far as to say and i think he does in the china study as well that close to 80 percent of these uh major cancers are lifestyle created right yeah uh, yeah yeah got the data from uh, the, the counties and the counties in China that were eating animal foods comparing those with counties that were eating plant-based there's a striking difference yeah yeah so um, I think that wraps up all of our questions for today um, thank you for answering those so eloquently um, yeah. hey uh, so I should well if I I'm hoping to see you in a couple weeks obviously at the farm if for whatever reason that doesn't happen i know a hundred percent i will see you and and mommy at the farm august 14th to the 16th oh at the at the uh, plant for stock our, for our an online virtual plant stock event that is going to be a real a real doozy um but you know daddy happy father's day to you 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 have the heart of a hero and you're <laughs> you epitomize uh, in space, what we're looking for on season two of, of the podcast. So thanks, Rip. Thank you. And I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Ann, you want to say hi? And you want to say hi? To me? Oh. <clears throat> oh my. Come on, Ann, give a little shriek or something. Well, I, hi. <laughs> hi. What you doing? <laughs> well, I'm, um, catching up on emails. Wow. You're looking all athletic in your shorts and your, your nice pink shirt. Can you come down a little bit so we can see your face? There. <laughs> awesome. All right. I, I love you, you guys. Back, All right. Yeah. Get well. Bye. Bye. All right. Another wonderful and informative conversation with my dad and kale hero, Dr. Cobble B. Esselton Jr. is in the can. Thanks to your burning questions. Please keep them coming as we'll be doing these on a regular basis. As always, I hope you found his answers and direction to be grounding, insightful, and motivational. 
If there's anything that you can depend on with my dad, it's that he's going to always shoot straight. Next week, we tease it in the episode, and it's an important one. We continue and expand on the topic of nitric oxide with Dr. Nathan Bryant. He's one of the foremost authorities on the planet on nitric oxide. Find out next week on the Plant Strong Podcast. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Kryle Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.